0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton. Well, the most uh, recent uh, partial government shutdown showed us that many people live paycheck to paycheck and can't afford to go without any part of their salary. A Federal Reserve Board report recently said 40 percent of Americans couldn't come up with four hundred dollars In the case of an emergency, money and finances are a huge source of stress for many people. But our next guest says there's something that we may be able to do about it. CBS News business analyst and certified financial planner Jill Schlesinger offers what she says is practical advice to help people become more financial savvy. Her new book is titled The Dumb Things That Smart People Do With Their Money. 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. And it's a pleasure to have Jill joining us from the CBS Broadcast Center in New York City today. Jill, welcome.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Great to be with you.
0: Thank you. You give the example of a smart friend of yours uh, uh, and what uh, he had gone through in terms of being a great person, being a great person in business, but just making mistakes in in general where his finances were concerned. How— normal is that in our society today where we see people just they may be very smart but where finances really come about they, they will make mistakes.
1: Well absolutely uh, find it over and over and uh, you know I have a weird career um, where I started. Wall Street I was a trader as a commodities trader on the floor of the commodities exchange and then I became a certified financial planner and I owned my own investment advisory and money management firm and, and I became part of the CBS family and through all these stages it, it always struck me as strange that I would meet these incredibly smart professionals who would talk to me in sort of hushed tones about the thing that I, I just got to talk to you for a few minutes and. I think that the the common denominator that I have found over my more than 30 years in financial services is that when it comes to money, we, we just are often gripped by our emotions and there's no getting around it, that we yeah. are human beings. We're not always rational. And I think that all of the books out there and the advice out there that tries to quantify every single personal finance decision and make it a mathematical equation is kind of missing the boat because we are just not programmed to make great long-term decisions.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, in fact, you refer to to some of these mistakes as kind of blind spots, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because when you have someone who is otherwise intelligent and they make a mistake, they're often usually... The mistakes that are caused by their emotions fear and greed and also the cognitive biases that that are kind of pre-programmed into the human being and I really wanted to make sure that I could write a book for these kinds of people my friends my colleagues my former clients my own podcast listeners and TV viewers who shared their dumb things but they actually own it they say you know I think I did something dumb but I need help and the whole point of the book is to say we're all going to do these things, not every single one of them. Here's the way to avoid it.
0: What do you in, – in the course of uh, your work at CBS and, and your business, what are some of the more common mistakes that, that people are making these days?
1: You know, I start the book with two dumb things that I think I hear about all the time, and that is that people buy financial products or some financial uh – uh, investment that they don't understand, and the second thing, which is sort of related, is that you that people are taking financial advice from the wrong kinds of people. Right. So let me start with dumb thing number two, which is, can I drop an f bomb on your show or not?
0: Ah, uh, it's Wharton, so let's. We might not want to do that. They're gonna like this one. It's the fiduciary. Oh, answer. that f bomb! Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Nice. My head was <laughs> in the wrong spot. I, you I are
1: in the gutter, young yes, man. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. So, um, when we talk about financial advice, there's this concept called fiduciary, and a yes. lot of people listening know that concept because if you're a certified, if you're if you're a CPA, if you're a certified financial planner, if you're an attorney, um, and if you're a doctor, you basically have to put the interest of your patient or client before your own, right? Yeah, yep. that makes sense. Yeah. But not every person who gives financial advice. Is held to that standard right so a lot of times people are being sold products or they are being given quote-unquote advice but it's not advice that that is necessarily in their best interest so I think that it is important to put that out there that there are tons of people who are selling stuff to you and it does not have to be in your best interest and that can lead to this process where you're buying stuff that you don't really understand and yet here's a when you're a really smart professional you may feel a little embarrassed about asking a question and saying, well, I don't really understand this because maybe you feel, oh, I should understand it. Right. But you don't. And so I think it's really important to make sure that you don't buy financial products that you don't understand and that you try to avoid taking financial advice from the wrong people.
0: Well, and part of that problem is is obviously the basic understanding that one person would have in terms of financial products in comparison to somebody else. And you're never going to have really the same kind of uh, playing field level playing field in in any of these situations the level of understanding is going to be different person to person
1: absolutely but it's funny like why are we not asking these questions i have met you know partners of law firms who show me insurance policies and say i bought this thing i have no idea and i said but why didn't you just ask this well i want to insult him. You know, I I tell the story of my dad being in an an ICU, and I'm asking the doctor questions, and my dad turns to me and says, why are you asking these questions? It's insulting to him. I'm like, Dad, I'm just asking a question like, do you really need the test? And there are certain people who feel almost embarrassed about that, and I want everyone to get over it because, frankly, really wonderful financial professionals love fielding those kinds of questions because they want you to feel good about whatever it is. That they're discussing.
0: Jill Schlesinger of uh, CBS News joining us. We're talking about her book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. One of the chapters you have in the book, one of the dumb things, uh, deals with college debt, and, and obviously that's a huge concern of, of so many people out there right now. Take us into some of the things you've seen surrounding college debt.
1: Well, I think that what we have now learned is that, you know, a million different pieces of research will show us that people who have college degrees make more money over the course of their career. Right. Absolutely not an arguable point. However, what we don't know is just how much taking on all of the debt to achieve that college degree is really impacting people so I think that the story's been told of the poor millennial and I feel bad for these kids because they came out of school with piles of debt and not great job opportunities and so I get that I think that that story has been told but I'm really much more focused on what is happening to the parents and grandparents of these kids yeah. where they are saying I want you to have an education at any cost and so therefore I will delay my retirement or I will dip into my retirement to pay for your education or I will go into debt to get you that education the fastest growing segment of student loan borrowers is those over the age of 60 that is mind-blowing yeah and so I want people to really be thinking about if you are lucky enough to get this private university education. That is not the God-granted right that you must deliver to your kids. You've got to look at the family's finances and what everyone can afford.
0: Well, and I remember seeing a story recently about a woman who was at age 60 and she was still paying off her own college debt. And that's that's just something that we can't have in this country if we want to be able to build savings and continue to have a strong economy.
1: Absolutely. And it's really interesting because – You know, I think that there was a period of time uh, decades ago where there were, and and still maybe to this day, where there are people who say, look, you get into a top tier school, you got to go. That's probably true. Right. Because if you get into a school like Wharton undergrad, right, you you probably should go. That is a name brand that means something. But the other funny thing about those names is that those are usually the schools with big... And those yes. are the schools where usually if you are a family that has let's say less than an income of $250,000, the school's going to help you get that education. Yes. It's really more of like the third and fourth tier schools. I won't call them out by name, I don't want to insult anybody, but you know, you're you may be paying for this quote unquote private label education where your kid at the state school would be just as well off. I We have a friend of mine who was her daughter had gotten into a private school in Vermont. She lived in Rhode Island. And I said, but what's the difference? This school in Vermont is no different than University of Rhode Island. It's twice the cost. And she goes, well, she really wants to go. Well, you know, that's not the answer. The answer is you make some bad choices in your life so that your kid could have slightly better beer. It's not going to make <laughs> sense.
0: Jill Schlesinger joining us here. Uh, she is the uh, business uh, analyst at CBS News. She's also a, cer- a certified financial planner, and she is the author of the book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Your comments are welcome right now at 844 Wharton 844 942 or if you're not able to get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The book, by the way, is available in bookstores and online uh, now for your purchase. And it is a great look. Thirteen different things that Jill has uh, pointed out that are things that people do that end up being dumb, that end up uh, affecting their finances in a significant a significant way. Uh, and what I what I find is amazing is just the fact that at times the lengths that people will will have to go to try and deal with a variety of these issues and i think one of the more amazing things that uh, that is out there right now uh, is the fact that that people are having to to deal with financial issues post retirement, not only themselves but their kids are having to deal with issues uh, that their parents may be having post retirement, and it's a dynamic that not only the parent is having to deal with, but it's also the child is having to deal with as well.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, look, the the thing that's really weird about fa- finances today is that it used to be sort of each generation will deal with the, an issue on its own and what we're finding more and more is that we are seeing intergenerational linkage of family finances so we talked about college right yep. But what about if all of a sudden I have a friend of mine whose parents they retired too early they spent a bunch of money. now their retirement shortfall has become his problem And so one of the things that I did in this book was really talk about the conversations that are so hard to have sure right but we want you to have them because if you don't you are taking on this huge responsibility and risk that you don't know about so really what's worse having the awful conversation with your parents to sort of say going on in your financial life or something really bad happening later on that you're surprised about. So this is really acknowledging that without these kinds of conversations, you may be assuming a massive financial risk that you didn't really think you were signing up for.
0: You also talk about identity theft uh, here in the book, and that's obviously another uh, a big problem uh, in this country, and it's also a, a global problem as well. What do you see are that the issues really are mounting because of identity theft right now
1: first of all I think it's the funniest thing because everyone's like yeah 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 I know about identity theft but you know (laughs) we all are (laughs) yeah it's kind of a boring topic I get it but you really need to do something about it obviously we've had two huge data breaches in the last two and a half years right we had Equifax in 2017 we had the Marriott and the Starwood one I think it's safe to assume that your information is out there sure I mean whether anyone's acting on it it's out there and what that really means is that this is a weird intangible threat right if I said to you hey you know what there's a lion coming you get up and you start running that's a tangible threat you will move but as human beings what's hard is the behavioral economists will say it's very difficult to address these intangible threats and react to them so there I know it's kind of a boring thing we can become lackadaisical but I do think paying attention to this it's going to become a bigger and bigger issue taking control of it and making sure that at least you're not giving identity thieves the low-hanging fruit. Let them go to the next car. My mother used to say, well, lock the door because maybe they'll go to the next car to break in.
0: The good news, though, where, where that's concerned is I think there is a, a much greater awareness of the problem. And it's obviously more than just changing your passwords every couple of months to make sure that hackers can't get to them. But still, if at least we have a recognition of it as, as, a, as a country, and maybe we need to have a, a, a greater recognition of it as a government right now, th- then we may be able to mitigate the problem a little bit. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it, but at least we can mitigate it a little bit.
1: Well, I start with something that I think is probably... An impossibility at this moment but I would like to argue for that you're when you are born you are born with a social security number and your credit file is frozen I'd like to say that we start frozen and if you need to borrow money you must then unfreeze it and then you could freeze it again but you know the idea that your credit information you know when the data breach occurred I think people really got a hard lesson in what that meant that meant that your credit file is being sold and it is open and available and the risks are enormous so lock it down because even if someone steals your information if your credit file is locked down they're gonna have a harder time doing something with it
0: Jill Schlesinger of uh, CBS News joining us. The book she has uh, written is called The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, or on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I find it fantastic that you also take on the debate of of buying a house versus renting, which I was in a couple of years ago, and it is it is a great challenge for, for millions of Americans, especially from what we went through a few years ago because of the housing crisis.
1: Oh, absolutely. You would think that a once-in-a-generation housing boom and bust would cure us of that <laughs> notion of that gauzy, great American dream. But man, it's strong. And I know everyone loves to watch HGTV and stuff like that. But here's the thing. I think that what has always been interesting to me is that when people look at housing and they look at real estate... it. T- this very sexy um, appeal. And and the problem that I see is this, that there are far too many people who are saying, oh, well, you know, my parents told me renting is throwing money out the window. It's not, actually. Renting is simply buying opportunity. And in fact, I think that's the way you should be thinking about it. Too many people go into home ownership really financially unprepared. They haven't run the numbers. I haven't figured out whether renting is preferable uh, they maybe were counting on tax benefits that may not be there anymore now that we have the limitation of, of salt uh, the state and local tax deduction at $10,000 in many of these high-tax states really what I want people to figure out is what is it going on in your life how have I run the numbers does this make sense to me or am I trying to sort of look at the best case scenario oh, what, I just want to buy this house in Arizona. I think I'll eventually want to move into it. I can't really afford it now, but I'll just rent it out. And then, whoops, the market falls out from under you. What we do know, at least over the last 10 years, is we've now cured an entire country and generation of the idea that real estate values never go down.
0: I I think the the other interesting part of of what we've seen in the last few years is also that if you go back about five years, millennials were on a path where – Really, a lot of them did not even want to consider buying a house, at least until their mid thirties. Now you have a lot of those people that are starting to get into that that age bracket, and they are thinking about buying a home. Obviously, for you know, I'm in my early fifties, and, and you know, the idea that my parents taught to me was get a good job, you know, try and get to your you know your mid to late twenties, and then go ahead and buy the home. I'm wondering if if we're going to see a shift back towards that uh, with the next few generations when they get into that age bracket
1: you know I think that what we're learning is going back to the college debt issue is that uh, that it's not that Millennials were saying I don't want to buy a house it was that I'm saddled with 50 grand of student loans and it doesn't make sense right now I think that as we get those kids to get a little bit older we did see that they are starting to buy homes and look we went through this strange period of time where housing housing Affordability is not great in many markets so at the moment where maybe some people would have been enticed to buy early in the recovery and prices were really cheap the maybe the person didn't have a good enough job or hadn't replenished savings now in the the, you know say in the last few years we have affordability at pretty rotten levels so we have many markets where it's much better to be a renter than a buyer and you know honestly If you want flexibility, if you want to be able to take advantage of a job opportunity in Austin, Texas, or Philadelphia, or in Portland, Oregon. Buying can be a problem. So you want to leave yourself opportunity, flexibility, and especially if you're young, you don't necessarily have to feel like, oh, I'm not putting down roots, but you just have to feel like this is a smart thing for me. And if you can buy a house, great, go buy a house. There's yeah. nothing wrong with it, but don't do it just willy-nilly.
0: My next question from one of your books will be a fill in the blank. So you need to have a will when. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. When do you really, when should people start to really consider having the will?
1: Um, you know, if you're an adult, I I want you to just think of this. As soon as you have some stuff, you probably need a will. And, uh, you know, there are some times where I meet a 25 or 30 year old young person who's working and says, I don't really have that much. Uh, I have a 401k, so that will pass by contract to my named beneficiary, right? No big deal. Correct. And then I'll say, okay, well, you know, do you, if, you, if you drop dead tomorrow, uh, would you want someone to get something? And then, the, then they start thinking, well, yeah, you know, I do have this amazing baseball card collect that's great yeah. um, and then I would say well you know my my big joke is that I have this great fear of, of hit of getting hit by the m57 it's a bus that is very goes very fast in New York so I said you know if you got hit by, by a bus tomorrow and you were incapacitated who would you want to make the decision right. about what would happen to you so I think that estate planning is something that needs to really be taken care of I think that frankly technology is great hire a big fancy lawyer you know you can download some files but honestly if you have kids you have to have a will and a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy if you're married you should if you have any sort of assets you should and if you care about decisions about your end of life or what would happen if then you need to get that planning done remember this is one of the worst mistakes to make once you make it, your heirs are left with a pile of crap to sort through after yeah. your death.
0: Uh, you also finish up the book talking about the market. And, and one of the things you talk about is timing the market, which is something that has kind of been out there for for a long time. Is uh, How prevalent is timing the market still today?
1: You, you know what's funny? Um, I fought with my editor to get this chapter in because yeah. he's, no one does that anymore. And I said, Really? I did it when I was a young money manager, and I get I get asked about this time and time again. Let me give you my specific recent ex- experience. You may have heard that things here at CBS News been a little volatile at the, the corporation. Yes. And the stock price has been moving around like crazy. Yes. So, yeah. you know, the stock was moving in sort of the mid-50-ish range. It went down to the high 40s and then back up into the 50s cannot tell you the number of emails that I got from people who said to me what should I do with my CBS stock because they match in CBS stock inside the 401k plus there's a lot of people who have acquired this stock and it came to it really came to the fore and I realized there are so many people who are trying to figure out the exact perfect time to unload or buy more of their CBS stock I said you really think you're smarter than the market don't you (laughs) let me explain to you why market timing doesn't work make two perfect decisions, when to sell and when to buy, or vice versa. So what I really think is important is that smart people specifically tend to uh, really fall prey to this because they're so smart, they believe in the power of their human intelligence, they're a bit more self-righteous and self less self-aware about these topics. They think that there's some little man behind the curtain, uh, the, the great Oz, that's gone out the way to beat the market and here are the things that we know we know that market timing is really hard over the long term we know that it is very difficult to beat an index over the long term consistently and we know that kind of for most people probably 99% of investors sticking to low-cost index funds that are basically put in place according to a, a game plan rebalanced every so often the key. You don't have to be smarter than the market. I guess that's really the issue.
0: Jill, it's a fantastic book. Thank you for giving us your time today. Greatly appreciate the insight.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Jill Schlesinger, uh, CBS News Business Analyst. The book, again, is The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Uh, The book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase now.
1: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. specifically tend to uh, really fall prey to this, because they're so smart. They believe in the power of their human intelligence. They're a bit more self-righteous and self less self-aware about these topics. They think that there's some little man behind the curtain, uh, the, the great Oz that's going- out the way to beat the market and here are the things that we know we know that market timing is really hard over the long term we know that it is very difficult to beat an index over the long term consistently and we know that kind of for most people probably 99% of investors sticking to low-cost index funds that are basically put in place according to a, a game plan rebalanced every so often the key. You don't have to be smarter than the market. I guess that's really the issue.
0: Jill, it's a fantastic book. Thank you for giving us your time today. Greatly appreciate the insight.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. Thank you. Jill Schlesinger, uh, CBS News Business Analyst. The book, again, is The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. Uh, The book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase now.
1: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.